And I think it's important for those people, these people who think that, you know, they're summoning kind of a righteous anger to lose. And it's, it's like, it's not just that they should lose politically at home and like Israel's going to do it anyway. And the U.S. government is going to, is going to, it's going to give them, you know, supplies and weapons and money. They should be shamed. I mean, I'm sorry, but like they are so used to having this kind of moral high ground and judging everybody like I stand in judgment of them. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Dom. Before I introduce this week's guest, Eli Lake, a couple of announcements. The 2024 retreats for the Unspeakeasy have been announced, at least four of them. So uh, here we go. Get your pencil out. March 2nd and 3rd, we will do a weekend retreat in Austin, Texas. April 9th through 12th, we will do a three-night retreat in Louisville, Kentucky. April 20th and 21st, a weekend retreat in Los Angeles. And then in the fall, October 21st through 24th, we will be in Woodstock, New York. That is what we have for now. It's possible I will slip a few more in, but that's what we're doing. People are already signing up. So go to theunspeakeasy.com and find out more. The Louisville Retreat will feature guest speakers Corinna Cohn and Nina Paley of the Heterodorks podcast. Not sure of the guest speakers for the other retreats. I will announce those as soon as I have them, but Corinna and Nina will join us in Louisville and um, yeah, get in on it. Space is limited. We cap this at about 18 people, so don't delay. What else? I think that's enough for now. I'll introduce my guest. Okay. Eli Lake. As I mentioned in the last few episodes, I am following the situation in Israel. I guess we could now call it war in Israel as closely as I can and trying to fill in the many gaps in my knowledge. A few weeks ago, I had a conversation about the response on college campuses to the October 7th attacks. I talked with writer Ben Appel about how the concept of decolonization had infiltrated virtually every corner of the liberal arts. For this week, I spoke with Eli Lake. Eli is a columnist for the Free Press and the host of the Re-Education podcast. He's also former national security correspondent for the Daily Beast and Newsweek. Uh, He writes for lots of other places, including Bloomberg and Commentary. I brought him in, honestly, to ask what I think are some pretty basic questions about Israel that I think a lot of people, especially non-Jews, are asking themselves. And, um, you know, maybe these are the kinds of questions that, like, you're sort of embarrassed to ask because you feel like you should know the answers, but I think a lot of people don't. For instance, what does it mean to call for a ceasefire? And what would happen if one occurred? What news and information are we supposed to trust? What are Palestine liberation protesters in the West missing about the bigger picture? And finally, not finally, but... This is also on the list of things I asked. How did Israel end up surrounded by enemies? What's changed between Israel's declaration of independence in 1948 and today? And how likely is Israel to survive in the long run? What happens if Israel loses this war? What happens if it wins? We talk about all of that and more in this conversation. So here it is. Eli Lake, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate your being here. 
This is not a subject I have followed especially closely over the years. And I'm one of those people who's been scrambling to catch up these last weeks. So a lot of my questions are probably going to sound pretty basic. Uh, I do think there's some value in that. So just put it, putting that out there. Now, we are approaching a month past the October 7th massacre. The dead are still being identified. Only a few hostages have been released, as we know. Ground war has effectively begun. A regional war seems increasingly likely. Hundreds of thousands are protesting across cities worldwide, calling for a ceasefire and saying a lot of other things, which we'll get to. And there's obviously a lot to unpack, but I want to start right here. It's a very basic question. Why is a ceasefire not possible? Well, to start, technically speaking, Hamas violated the ceasefire from before on October 7th. But more importantly, the pattern of these, what were until October 7th, rocket wars, basically, where they would shoot rockets indiscriminately, violating the earlier ceasefire And then Israel would respond, usually with aerial attacks, though in Operation Chaos Lead, there was partial ground invasion. It's led to misery for both the Israelis, but also mainly for the Palestinians who have to live under a kind of uh, equivalent of of a fanatic mafia. And there is just, I mean, what we what we saw is that, you know, like, if Hamas was able to get power gliders, bulletproof vests, submachine guns, and other kinds of, you know, weaponry to conduct this horrific slaughter. And is the expectation that Israel is supposed to just, you know, I don't know, have a ceasefire and then allow Hamas to continue to use the Gaza Strip as a base for war and and you, and, and hold captive their entire population so that the next war, more Palestinians will die so they can win, you know, the information war as well as, you know, kill more Jews. It's um, it's almost masochistic to think that leaving them in power is an option at this point. And so they've, they've made it clear who they are. They're not interested in an accommodation. There isn't something that Israel could do that would change the calculus of this organization. It's telling, by the way, that the leadership of Hamas does not even live in Gaza. They, they're in Doha and some are in Turkey. And they have decided to basically sacrifice 2 million Palestinians in order to kill more than 1,400 Jews. That is their calculus. So there can't be a ceasefire with an organization like that because leaving them in power will not only threaten Israelis and embolden Israel's enemies, which is sort of the most obvious point, but it will also further immiserate Palestinians. So when I see protests against, you know, this, I mean, it's so illiterate and and offensive to say that it's a genocide going on. It's the slowest genocide in the history of genocides, but okay. When I see that, I'm like, well, why don't you address some of your anger at the people who are primarily culpable for all of this, which is Hamas? And of course they don't do that. So that's why a ceasefire doesn't work this time because we can't, I mean, Israel can't live in a world with Hamas, but frankly, neither can the Palestinians and neither can anybody who cares about, who cherishes civilization. Okay. So these protesters, let's just, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of them. So let's just take maybe some of the ones who 
are smarter or a little bit more informed. What do they think is going to happen? Like, is there a world that they are imagining in which there's like a ceasefire for a certain amount of time and there's a hostage negotiation and the Gazans can somehow get out and then a war starts again? Like a war playing by the rules more? Like, what are they imagining? I mean, I'm sure you've heard this expression, Calvin Ball, where No, I I have not. Okay, Calvin Ball is from the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip, but it's a game (laughs) that is made up and the rules keep changing to advantage Calvin. And so this is Calvin Ball because they're never going to be satisfied. I mean, this is really a protest against Israel's right to defend itself. It's a protest for the preservation of a corrupt and repressive regime in Gaza, that is Hamas. And it's done, you know, under the slogan of caring about human rights. It couldn't be further from the truth. And all you need to know about these protests is that the most obvious demand that would probably bring a cessation to hostilities would be demanding that Hamas release the hostages and allow Gazans to flee to the southern part of the country that Israel for two weeks said you should get out of this area of Gaza because the infrastructure for Hamas exists kind of honeycombed throughout this densely populated city of Gaza City. Now, I was last there 10 years ago, but I can tell you that it is densely populated, but it's to simply say that the entire place is an open-air prison misses the point. There is a lux- There are luxury hotels, there are shopping malls. The people who are on the inside on, of the regime live well, and if you are really high up in Hamas, then you live at the Four Seasons in Doha, Qatar. So it's the idea that, you know, there's nothing these protesters who claim to have such, you know, empathy for, you know, the misery of Palestinians to say the most obvious sorts of things or to demand the most obvious sorts of things that would clearly end a lot of suffering, uh, let alone just the humanity of not thinking that, you know, Jewish people shouldn't be kidnapped, uh, you know, and, and who knows what else terrible things are happening to them is uh astounding i mean they're frauds i mean that is it's they these the people who are doing these protests i think a lot of them are ignorant they don't know anything and there's a group of them that are just you know i don't evil and they're and this is a fraudulent human rights movement it's not anything it doesn't there's nothing serious about human rights that they're saying they're just simply saying israel shouldn't respond to the worst massacre of jews since the holocaust no other country would ever be, you know, would ever consider such an action. And they get away with it because, you know, there's a lot of people who have been, you know, drinking from this sort of anti-Israel poison, particularly on campus now for decades. Yeah. And I want to get to that. You had a really interesting conversation with Leon Weaseltier recently, just about how this kind of Marxist critique decolonialization theory has burbled up and really you know, perpetuated and infiltrated everything in the last couple of decades. And so I think there's a, a lot to to talk about there. But before we start to go that direction, maybe I should just ask you this, like, what should I even be asking? Part of my problem, and I think I'm not alone here, is that I sit on Twitter all day. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm seeing stuff that at this point, I don't know if it's true. I don't know what I'm looking at. 
I don't know if this photo is real. I don't know if this hostage has actually been released. I don't know why these hostages are acting this way, um, having been released. And then I go over to the New York Times or even just Google News, and it's like, oh, wait, where's the news? There's like only three articles here, and they're not telling me very much. So I can either I can either like have my head spun out of control on Twitter, or I can feel like a bunch of empty space in the mainstream news. So, well, first of all, can, I want to congratulate you because you're asking the right question. Anytime there is a war, you have to be skeptical of images and videos and things like that that you see. In this particular case, though. The start of the war was videoed by the assailants. Right. So they wanted to tell the world that they were baby killers, that they were, you know, this is what Hamas wanted. They, why else would you GoPro it? And that itself, I think, is, it's, it's a clarifying and horrifying kind of fact, Right. So that's the first, that's where I start. I'm saying why it's usually people who commit horrendous crimes, they have some understanding that this is something that most human beings are revulsed. And so why is it that the reaction that we saw in that first weekend, less so in the West, but certainly in the Muslim world, was almost, you know, jubilation, although there were people in the West who were celebrating. What is it about? the slaughter of Jews that drives people to leave their homes and, you know, feel some kind of exhilaration. And that's a scary thought, but you're right to say there's a lot of information that might not be true. We saw that obviously with the uh, story from two weeks ago about the Al-Allah hospital. And I mean, I just think that it's, we know there's, there, there are mountains of evidence from past wars in Gaza that I think make it clear that part of Hamas's strategy, and by the way, there are quotes from Hamas leaders saying as much, is that they they want the Palestinian population to martyr itself, basically, and to basically, you know, they, they as I said, they, they store their weapons, they fire their rockets from schools and mosques, and that's not de- debatable at this point. And lots of, and mainstream, in other wars, there have been and we'll probably get it from this war as well. Mainstream media outlets, you know, verifiable people have have reported that. The second point is that the palace that Hamas has a strategy that seeks to delegitimize the state of Israel and particularly its ability to defend itself. And so it has an interest in circulating video and, and photographs of, you know, kind of horrific atrocities probably some of them are probably real some of them are not real um and it's hard to sort of sort through that in real time i think the problem is is that if you take the right approach which is i'm skeptical of stuff coming out in this right and you should be i mean it's every state is capable of of especially in wartime is capable of lying and that happens you know the us does it every it's not unknown but I think there are more consequences for a government like Israel when it does that than there are for Hamas. And we just, how do we know that? Well, we just saw the, you know, Hamas-controlled ministry, Gaza Ministry of Health take the entire global media for a ride, and it hasn't changed 
you know, th- th- there hasn't been an, an understanding now for like the BBC or this or CNN or other places that we are not going to, we're no longer going to take these, you know, alleged Gaza ministries at face value. And maybe that's changing. I don't know. But I mean, I have still seen, you know, reports that will cite them. If you continue to cite sources that have already kind of proven themselves to just be making up statistics and so forth and making up whole events, as we saw in the church, in that church event, well, that ought to tell you something. And I don't think you can say the same on the Israeli side. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and just to be clear, I was in no way uh, suggesting that the initial Oh, I know you weren't. I wasn't, I wasn't suggesting not, that either. Okay. Some people have suggested that. So. That's the thing about social media, and I was going to ask you about this, is that you see, you can see it, like, if you, if, you re- if you go down these rabbit holes and, like, follow it and look at certain accounts, it doesn't matter that, you know, the, everybody from the New York Times sort of said, okay, wait a second, that thing that we originally reported about the hospital that the Palestinians said, well, that wasn't true. Doesn't matter. There are still people who will say that because you, it's so easy to get wrapped up into your own echo chamber that you keep getting, you know, confirmation. You keep getting people saying that you're, you know, that agreeing with you, even when you're just spouting nonsense. No, I know. It happens on a lot of things. I mean, I think that's one of the things that happened in the 2020 election, which is that, you know, it's kind of, you know, the theories of why it was stolen from Trump are ridiculous but there were enough people who just weren't willing to hear anything else that they, it was almost like a self-reinforcing, you know, it's like a self-reinforcing loop of, of uh, nonsense. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you what you know to be true at this point. So we're recording this on October 31st. People are probably going to hear this hopefully just in a few days. So, I mean, I'm reading that the Gaza Health Ministry whatever that means, has said that Israel has so far killed more than 8,000 people, more than 40% of them children. Okay, let's just stop right there. I mean, what do you, what goes through your mind when you hear figures like that? I don't believe they have, I'm not denying that there are probably innocent people who've been killed, including children. I just don't trust anything the Gaza Health Ministry says, not just because we know who controls it and we know that they lied on a big thing before, but also because how would they have a real estimate like that? I mean, the Israelis are still adjusting their totals from three weeks ago. So it, and also it doesn't, it's kind of counting up how many dead are on both sides is a facile analysis because you have to ask, well, why? I mean, Israel gives warnings of when it's going to bomb places. It urged the population to move south and Hamas prevented people from moving south and told them that they had to stay in, you know, at great risk. So that itself should tell you something. And then why does Hamas store its weapons? Why does Hamas fire rockets from places that are den- densely packed? Why does it have its headquarters underneath the Al-Shifa hospital? Those are themselves war crimes. This is an army, if you want to call it that, that is using its own population as a shield. It's a human shield, and that, that's a war crime. Again, the people who, who, who will repeat these statistics and exaggerate these statistics are totally uninterested in asking questions about why that is and what it means to sort of fight such an enemy. Now, if you want to argue, and I think it's fair, that 
Israel knows all of this, and it still shouldn't use such heavy munitions and so forth, and there are maybe better ways. Well, I'd love to hear the plan. And okay, but the, the idea that Israel is deliberately trying to kill all of these people, and they're just this horrible monster, and this is what life is like in this you know, concentration camp, and you hear all this rhetoric that is evocative of the Nazis and so forth, it's just so, it's a perversion of moral intelligence, because what we saw was, you know, a movement that was dedicated to just killing Jews, no matter who they were. And then the responses from the army of a Jewish state is to give warnings. I mean, they're, they allowed fuel shipments and all of these kinds of things. And then when we see, a, there was a very telling story uh, in the New York Times a couple of days ago that was about how there were stocks of food and fuel that were only for Hamas in their underground tunnel city. So, you know, Hamas is is kind of plead. It's 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 like the um the or the the guy the, the the child who kills his two parents and then goes to the judge and says, "Please have mercy on me. I'm an orphan." That's what's going on. So I I'm that's why I'm sort of I don't want to get caught up in these statistics. But again, it's a tragic situation that in order to do what I think is kind of achieve this righteous goal of ending Hamas's rule in Gaza that Israel is probably is probably killing innocent civilians and that sucks and I again if you're going to be responsible and sort of debate and say well it's not worth the cost or whatever I'm here for it but to just simply ignore all of these other factors as to how Hamas has decided to cynically fight this war is uh I, I just think it that is self-discrediting. So I just don't want to hear it from the kind of usual suspects, and we all know who they are, who just use this as a, an opportunity to kind of delegitimize a state that was just suffered a, a, an absolutely kind of unthinkably savage attack. Yeah. And I want to understand maybe what is the relationship between the Palestinian people and Hamas? I mean, first of all, Tell us a little bit, like, what kind of on-the-ground reporting over the, your career you've done in this region? Like, sort of, how did you come to be an expert? Well, I, I, I hate that term, expert, because as a journalist, and I'm, I can, you know, we're journalists, expertise is like the death of journalism. Okay, sorry. How did you, you know what I mean? How like, did I just, you, why did I call you? Let's no, no, I just, I mean, listen, I've been writing about it for a long time. Well, I, I had a front row seat in the second intifada, which began in 2000. Uh, I was a State Department correspondent at the time, but I got a chance to do a lot of reporting in Israel and the Palestinian territories. So that was one factor, 2000, 2001, in that period. And I covered the Iraq War. I've been to Iraq many times. I used to have this in my bio, but I, I've been to all three uh, members of the original axis of evil, Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. So I have covered wars. Uh, I am not a war correspondent. So I should say, you know, I've, I've done it as both an embed with the U.S. military in the Iraq war, but I've also what they call a unilateral, where I've gone with, uh, I know I knew a lot of Iraqis before the uh, 2003 war who eventually went on to serve in the, the, uh, the government that replaced Saddam Hussein. So I was able to use those contacts and kind of get around then. And, um, you know, I would just say that, the people who've really covered wars, and I, I, I have done a lot more than just being a war correspondent, and certainly lots of other journalists have sort of probably risked their lives more than I have, although I've been in some sticky situations. What you know, what you learn is that like 
you know, there's the first draft of what you think is going on is almost always going to change. So you learn more the, you know, when you go back and look at things and, and I've in recent years have become much more interested in kind of reading histories just because I think you can kind of get a fuller picture. But I think that's why I said earlier, your instinct is right not to trust information that comes out during a war because it's like everybody has a has an incentive to lie. So that is true. That said, I also think that, you know, in this kind of going back to the to this war in October 7th, the evidence was provided by the perpetrators. What do you know about the average Palestinian and their relationship to Hamas? One of the things I've heard from protesters is well, if we gave the Palestinians the tools, they could build, they could get rid of Hamas themselves and they could uh, maybe create their own democracy or something like that. Or they could live good lives if they weren't under the thumb of Hamas and, and Israel, if, if we just let them be. Now, we're also hearing that from, you know, the age of three, Palestinian children are taught that killing Jews is a virtue and this is their reason for being. And that basically this is an uncivilized civilization to put in so many words. How do you square with that? Where do you? Well, a couple, a couple points. There have been intermittent protests at great personal risk to the protesters in Gaza against Hamas's misrule. And this is because Hamas is corrupt. This is because Hamas takes a tax, basically, from the international development aid for Gaza and pockets it for their own purposes. So that's point one. There was a really great interview, I think, on Al-Arabiya, where one of the Hamas leaders, Ismail Haniya, was basically, the, the anchor was like, you're sitting here in air conditioning while, you know, there's a terrible war going on in Gaza. Why aren't you there? And I think that a lot of Palestinians understand that. And they understand that, they, you know, it's they're living under kind of, you know, this, they're living under a, a, a terror mafia. So that, but you can hold that idea in your head. And also, if you're a Palestinian, despise Israel because you have relatives who were kicked off their land or because you don't like the fact that, you know, Israel is imposing a lot of very strict border controls, even though those border controls exist because Hamas is, in, is the authority there. Most Palestinians that I've talked to understand this kind of complexity. It's not to say that they like Israel, but it's also to say they understand that Hamas is a dead end. But when you're a vicious gang and you are willing to use spectacular violence against your foreign and domestic enemies, which is what Hamas does. I mean, you should see there are videos of people that were accused, not through any kind of due process of being, you know, spies for Israel. They are chained to the back of motorcycles and dragged to their death through Gaza City. That, that there's a reason for those kinds of spectacular displays of violence. It's because it intimidates the rest of the population. It's one of the reasons why Joseph Stalin had public show trials. You know, I mean, it's because you are trying to get everybody else in the line. This is what happens when you uh, cross me. So in that respect, I always say we can't really know because I accept that there's been a lot of minds that have been poisoned by Hamas's control of the education curriculum and the internal like Gaza media and so forth, even though Gazans have access to satellite television. So that is true. 
But I don't think it's a complete answer because we just don't know. And I think even under those circumstances, there are a lot of Iranians who've been poisoned under their state, the regime's propaganda now for 40 years or more than 40 years. And yet we see a vibrant and robust protest movement of people who just understand at a fundamental level that the system is rigged against them and that the people who run the country are corrupt and incompetent and, you know, violent. So, you know, as, again, I don't think it's necessarily an either or. I'm under no illusions. I mean, to complicate the matter further, though, before there was a Hamas in 1987, there was Black September, there was the PFLP, there were nationalist Palestinian terrorist groups that also committed spectacular violence against Jews. And since before there was an Israeli state in the 1920s, there was a horrific pogrom in Hebron where the community of Jews had been living there for centuries and they were basically driven out in the same kind of spectacular violence that we saw on October 7th. So one of the problems here is that part of the strategy for Palestinian liberation, if that's what you want to call it, has been to commit atrocities against Jews so that they will leave Palestine as they see it. That's been a constant even during the years of the Oslo peace process where Yasser Arafat, we had all hoped, had, you know, kind of graduated from terrorist to statesman, you know, even then there were other groups that were committing terrorism in Israel. And also Arafat himself could not accept, you know, probably the most generous offer that he was, the Palestinians were ever going to get. And in the very end, the final year during what was known as the Camp David talks, uh, in t 2000, there's very, very strong evidence that he was planning what became known as the Second Intifada, which was absolutely vicious. So that is a problem, I think. It doesn't mean that I think all Palestinians are interested in this strategy of causing atrocities to get the Jews to leave, but it has been a constant in this conflict now for more than 100 years. So that's another element of this that we have to keep in mind, which is that like the this is kind of almost part of the language of Palestinian liberation. One of the impressions that I have about what was different in 1948, say, from today, is that there the region was much less radical. Islam was not um, it did not permeate as much. There were sophisticated cosmopolitan cities in the Middle East. You just did not have the sense of imminent threat in the region the way you do now. So can you talk about that? Like, Well, I don't think that's, I, I think I would push back true. on that. Okay, okay, okay. When Israel, when David Ben-Gurion. Feel ben -Gurion, free. I, this, is, this is just my, uh, you're, don't worry about it. No, pushing, no, no, no. pushing back is a, is a relative term when it comes to me in this subject. So that's fine. When, when <laughs> David Ben-Gurion declared a state of Israel, the original idea was that Israel would sort of share the land. There was this UN partition of pre-1967 Israel, where there were, you know, kind of a jigsaw puzzle map of, you know, what would be Palestine and what would be Israel. And so when Ben-Gurion declared, you know, the Jewish state, every Arab army that existed declared war on Israel. So the entire region revolted and they rejected the plan that was originally to sort of share this land. Now, you could argue it would have been really unworkable if you actually see that UN map or the partition, it looks unworkable. But nonetheless, that was, Ben-Gurion was willing to accept it and it was, you know, and the response was war. 
Again, 67, the Arab states declare war, Israel wins, and then they have a, a conference in, I think, Khartoum, where they issue what's called the three no's, no recognition, no negotiation. So this has been a problem for a while. Now, the difference is that right now in the Middle East, Israel has peace agreements and diplomatic recognition with not just the countries of the Abraham Accords, like the United Arab Emirates and Morocco, but also Egypt and Jordan. It has a sort of stealth relationship with Saudi Arabia that's been going on for a while. And this is driven by the fact that the Arab states understand that they have a common enemy with Israel of Iran. And that's made it possible for Israel to actually have more stable relations in the region than it's ever had, despite the fact that the Iranians, because they're, you know, a powerful country and they are, you know, ruthless and really, I would say the Henry Fords of modern Islamic terrorism, so that gives this sort of un- instability. But I mean, it's there is a famous quote, very unfortunate timing from Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, saying, "Well, this is the, you know, Middle East hasn't been this stable for twenty years or something like that." And then October seven happens. Well, you know that there was an part of that was true because there Israel was warming uh, its relationship with most of its Arab neighbors, which it never thought would have been possible, and it was possible because of the threat that Iran poses and. In that respect, I think we'll find out more as we uh, as more people are reporting on it. But it looks like the Iranians did have a role in this terrible October 7th thing. And if they did, then that's even more cynical. That's another country basically using Gaza as cannon fodder. Can't think of anything more cynical than that. Okay. I still want to understand, and I'm sorry to dwell on this. This is just an extremely layperson slash goyish question, I guess. But like, what was the logic at the time when Israel was founded as a Jewish state? Like, could was anybody anticipating it being this hard for this long? Well, I mean, I think the logic was after the Holocaust, Jews needed a safe haven. They needed a country of their own because they had been driven out of almost every other place they had lived. Now, I say as an American Jew, I think America has been a wonderful place for Jewish people. And I, I really still, I cannot imagine a time when most Americans would turn on Jewish people in the way that Russians, English, French, Spanish, Germans, obviously. You know, and also, by the way, keep in mind, after Israel is created, the Arab states then expel their Jewish populations. So I think there was a sense, after, especially after the Holocaust, but it really goes before the Holocaust, because Zionism is a 19th century, it starts in the 19th century, that, you know, Jews are, have to suffer through pogroms and everything, and purges and, you know, disputations, all of these kinds of terrible things and, and forms of oppression, that it's, you know, high time that the Jewish people had a state of their own, and why not have that state in their historic homeland? So there was this long process before 1948, of Jews migrating to what was then known as Palestine and other, you know, raising money to purchase tracts of land and things like that. And, you know, almost from the beginning, at least from, you know, the 1920s, the response from the Palestinians and the Arabs in general was that, you know, this was unacceptable, that you couldn't, they didn't want any of these Jews there, even though Jews had been living in Jerusalem and places like Hebron for centuries. So, I mean, I think the idea here is, just to sort of simplify it, the big idea behind Zionism is that 
Jews need a safe haven. Because of not just the Holocaust, but because of everything, right, you know, the leading up to the from the Spanish Inquisition to the Crusades, you can go down the list. The question still that I'm trying to understand is, is the only, is, is the main reason that they established the Jewish state in Palestine because it was the historic land. It was the Holy Land. That's a big reason. That's a good reason. But was there any discussion of like, this is not going to be a safe long-term strategy? Were they overly optimistic is what I'm There asking. were all, there was, with the Jewish people are known for their Talmudic discourse. And there was ferocious debates before the state of Israel about whether the, the wisdom of such a plan the most of the major American Jewish organizations were not Zionists, meaning they didn't support this project. There were a lot of American Jews who did, but there, you know, the sort of mainstream, you know, sort of German Jewish emigres who came in the 19th century were, were very hostile to the idea. Among the original Zionists themselves, there was a great debate over, you know, whether or not you would ever get to a point where the Palestinians would or the Arabs would ever accept Israel. Um, and I would say that, you know, on this one, the revisionist Zionists led by uh, Zev Jabotinsky were correct in that that was never going to happen, whereas I think that there was a lot of naive optimism from the other side represented by Ben-Gurion. So yeah, there was a lot of discussion about it, for sure. But I think that, you know, the experience of surviving, you know, Hitler's attempted genocide emboldened a generation of Jews that they they were they were going to fight for their, to, to reclaim their homeland. And it was, you know, and it was going to be in this historic land that was, you know, once governed by David and Solomon and Saul. Hey, let's talk about what we're seeing in the West, anti-Semitism. It, we seem to be on the cusp of a worldwide surge of anti-Semitism. It's really unlike anything I've I can imagine seeing in my lifetime. I mean, we've got things happening in Europe. There was a piece in Der Spiegel about what's going on in Berlin. We've got the college campuses. I guess my first question to you is, are you surprised? Let's start there. Or are you not surprised? Well, I'm a little surprised. To me, they're, let, to, let's start at home. Okay. Okay. So for people on college campuses who will shake in an almost epileptic seizure if a speaker they don't like is invited to speak on campus to then join a march that with a genocidal slogan of from the river to the sea after a horrific unspeakable pogrom it reveals such a dissonance, such a kind of like, I don't understand how you can resolve your sensitivity and need for safe spaces and concern about whether or not, like, you know, these are the same people who tell us that if you say a man cannot get pregnant, you have committed a hate crime. You have, that, that is a, a species of violence. To then turn around and celebrate real world horrific violence or to at least take the position that it was understandable and excusable and that Israel has to not retaliate or not respond or not try or, or and not call on the return of these hostages that is surprising because 
I, there's a, there's a Yiddish word chutzpah and that is chutzpah. That is unbelievable. And I just think that that is a clarifying moment, not just because it told, I mean, I, I knew that there was a lot of, you know, lunatic anti-Israel anti-Semitism on campus. That's not new to me, but I think it's clarifying because it discredits the social justice left. And I hope it discredits them forever. They, I, not another word about, you know, all lives matter versus black lives matter. Remember when that was a thing three years ago? I, I mean, when I'm reading that ridiculous woman from the Washington Post, Karen Atiyah, basically saying all lives matter when it comes to this massacre of Jews, I'm just flabbergasted. I'm like, how does anyone take this clown seriously? So that's the first thing. That was surprising to me because I just didn't think that I thought that they would have at least a little bit more, even if they, in their hearts, believed that, you know, the Palestinians were justified in this savagery. Even if that was the case, I would think that the people who were the act of, you know, this activist professor class or whatever, would have a little bit of common sense and understand that this is just not a tenable position, given your priors. So that was surprising. I'm really disappointed in the response from a lot of the Muslim world. and their willingness to believe any propaganda and disbelieve, you know, evidence, you know, that's terrible. But I have to say, you know, I was, I lived in Cairo, Egypt, when there were protests against the Danish embassy for the Muhammad cartoon contests. And in some ways, I guess that wasn't surprising. And then in Europe, I mean, Europe has been kind of on this course for some time. So Maybe I'm not surprised as much for that. I, I at home, I do think that they have, there are they, they can they can draw from a group of people who, you know, are kind of already locked in and they already know what they think they know. And it seems like my view is you're not going to be able to persuade the core, but my hope is that you can maybe peel off some of the low information types and just sort of say, wait a second, do, you know, let, do you know anything about this conflict? Do you know anything about this? Have you thought about what this might mean to your Jewish allies and so forth? And, you know, I say this genuinely, I am not on the left. I guess I would be more considered center-right. I have a lot of empathy and sympathy right now for my friends who are Jews who consider themselves kind of in that social justice world, because what I think they learned is that the people who they thought were their allies are not their allies. And I think it's important for us as Jews, and forget Jews, decent people who believe in, you know, common decency and, you know, freedom of speech. And I think values that you and I share, Megan, is to simply say, hey, guys who bullied us for the past couple of years or the past, you know, six years or whatever, we're not your allies. You make up, you disgust us, you nauseate us. And I think it's time for them to feel a little bit of that social shame. I'm against cancel culture. I'm troubled in some ways by you know, going through people's timelines and finding things. But on the other hand, I'm like, you know, you people loved cancel culture and kept calling it accountability culture. So there's a, I'm, I'm somewhat torn. Like, I feel like it's good for the goose is good for the gander. But I have to also say in my, I think my better moments to say, I don't like these rules at all. So, you know, I would rather just sort of reject the game. But if we are forced to play by these rules, then you ought to play by them too. Yeah, I know. I'm torn too because I want to be intellectually honest and say if I'm opposing cancel culture, I'm also opposed to, I mean, there's this, you know, there's a couple Twitter accounts. I think it's 
there's one that I can't remember the name of it. It's stop like, anti-Semitism. Stop anti-Semitism. Yeah. So this is like the new libs of TikTok. And it's, you know, we've got videos of people pulling down posters and they're acting like total assholes. And it's, you know, there's, it's kind of, you know, disgustingly delicious to watch. On the other hand, it's kind of like, I feel we are crowdsourcing child supervision. I mean, the the, the adults are not uh, punishing these kids. So the crowd is punishing them. But I did love that video of, you know, the, the Michael Chiklis looking guy in Queens. Oh, oh, the, oh, yes, of course. Well, yeah, that's that's different. Yes, that was. I mean, that, I, that I would like to see more of now. that. Like, I just did a monologue uh, my last episode, and I, I gave my advice to sort of like the decent people on campus who are sick of all of this. And I was like, you know, like don't ask for these vice chancellors and deans and college presidents to protect you. They are compromised. They are. We already know that they're like ruining these universities because they they don't care about free speech. They only talk about free speech in a situation like this when they don't want to, you know, fully criticize the Cretans on their own campus. So, you know, my view is get in their face. Like I'm not just stop being intimidated by, you know, oh my God, they're going to say I'm a racist. They're going to say I'm a Nazi. They're going to say this. You know what? Like these people are nonsense people. These people are just total Cretans. And expose them. Like, you know, we we can use our free speech too, is what I'm trying to get at. Like, it doesn't have to be like run to the administrator and tell them to ban students for justice in Palestine. Yeah, no, no. I would rather ridicule students for justice in Palestine. I would rather like relabel them students for slaughter in Israel or like, you know, uh, know, feminists against rape victims or something like that, because that's who they are. No, exactly. I mean, you talked about this in your talk with Leon Weaseltier, but I mean, I don't know if you want to expand on it a little bit, because it it seems like, you know, simplest way of explaining this is this, there's like this inverted power hierarchy, right? So if the logic is that you're, you're always punching up and it's always about holding power to account and you're allowed to say whatever you want if the person is, you know, white and in power and these protesters are they're perceiving Jews as white and in power and the Palestinians as brown and powerless. And it's as simple as that. And it stops there. Do you think that that is too simplistic of a reading? Well, you're talking about very simplistic people. So that reading is perfect because they are simpletons. But this comes from Franz Fanon, who wrote a book at the end of his life called The Wretched of the Earth. And that book is uh the it's sort of the original argument and in many ways giving the original language uh he invented the term decolonization which i'm sure you've heard a million times since october 7th i've heard that a million times since i was started college so yes i've heard that a million times in the last 30 years <laughs> right so fanon is this important thinker who was writing in the context of algeria's struggle for independence and what I try to point out in my monologue, you know, is that, well, look, how's Algeria doing today? It's repressive military dictatorship. And there's a reason for that, because if you are a leader, if you're, if your means of liberation is to summon spectacular violence, well, once you get that independence, the temptation is far too great for you to use that spectacular violence to basically consolidate and hold on to power yourself. And, you know, more importantly, it's an illiterate analogy to say that Israel is a colonial power. There's no mother country for Jews to return to. 
I mean, that's just a fact. So the idea that like, you know, anything is justified against the colonizer, I would disagree with that because I think that there has to be universal, you know, prohibitions on certain kinds of horrific mass slaughter or something. But let's leave that aside to then apply it to Israel is just nonsense because it, it it's not Israel doesn't have another country that they can return to. And, you know, you're just using a bunch of fancy words to basically justify the murder of Jews, which is what we've been seeing. And like, again, I am of the view that I don't like it when I hear my people, the Jews, talk about the need for safety, even though I also think that there are very real physical threats right now that we have to deal with. And I, you know, so I'm not, and it's a complicated question, but I'm not like, I guess in an ideal world, I would like to not read Yale professors talking about how it's okay to kill 1400 Jews. Okay. But I'm grateful that Zarina Gruel has showed the whole world who, who she is, because now it's like people cannot like hide behind, you know, obscurantist language and, and technical prose in order to obscure what they really think. Because then that's why it's, there's a value to this kind of clarifying moment, even though, again, I acknowledge it's very painful to read allegedly our most learned citizens say these terrible kind of, you know, barbaric things. But again, it's clarifying. Yeah. Um, I want to go to sort of back to the media piece for a minute here before we wrap up and also just talk about what is happening in Israel right now. Obviously, you are not in Israel. You are not reporting from there. But like, for instance, there was a long piece by David Remnick in The New Yorker uh, recently. Uh, He is there. He talked to a lot of people. And I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. I mean, it's a beautiful piece of writing. There's a lot of reporting in there. But there were moments where he's interviewing Israelis, and he talked to some Palestinians as well. But, you know, for instance, he interviews a man who is father of, I think his whole family is hostage right now. I mean, he can barely sleep. He's losing his mind. You can't even imagine. And at one point, he says something like, they didn't even, Hamas didn't expect this operation to succeed to the degree that it did. Like they basically, they lost their minds. And I just thought, is he saying that because his family is still taken hostage and he needs to be careful what he says? Or is there a sort of deeper understanding of the nuances among Israelis than among Americans or people in the West or anybody observing this? Well, I haven't had a chance to read Remnick's latest, so but I've heard that sentiment expressed as well, and I think you're asking the right questions. I would say though that it, it, there's something about it that doesn't make any sense to me. Again, why would you GoPro all of these events after this attack? You didn't hear anybody say we went too far after this attack. You know, Hamas, its patrons in Iran, they all praised this wonderful operation. And then there was this moment where like, nobody's a civilian, everyone's a settler, you know, so they keep changing their story. And that suggests to me, and because this obviously took at least two years, if not more of planning, it's hard for me to believe that this was not the goal. In fact, I, I don't believe that. So I just think that this is what they wanted to do. And also, finally, we know from their past actions, if you look at I, I like to sort of say this, but like, you know, there, every group of people has, there will be sociopaths in every group and, you know, Jews are not accepted. So there was a guy named Baruch Goldstein who in 1994 
committed a horrendous massacre at a mosque in the West Bank. And he died in the attack. But, you know, the entire world of Jewry, not to mention the Israeli government, all denounced this infamy and, you know, made it clear that this was terrible. If Baruch Goldstein was a Palestinian who attacked a synagogue, there would be murals of him in Gaza. And I'm sorry, but that's that's the difference. So I just don't believe that this was, oh, they got out of control, you know how people get or whatever. That's the kind of thing that you say, like people used to say, you know, about an actual war, like in Vietnam. This wasn't a war, it was a massacre. They didn't attack Israeli soldiers. I mean, there were a couple Israeli soldiers. They attacked like a kibbutz with regular people in their homes. They attacked a concert of people, you know, a peace concert. So I just, what was the, they were out of control. What, what did you, what were they doing there in the first place? It yeah, doesn't make no, any sense. That, I wonder if this is because he has, his family is being held. That I might mean, be I wonder, a, yeah. And I wonder that too, like what, what were your thoughts about the two women that were released? And, you know, you see them, one of them shakes hands with the Hamas guy as she's walking out. I mean, it's very strange. I think that that they're in an impossible situation. I, I'm not. I'm not, I have no evidence that we don't know. I mean, maybe they were treated well. And by the way, it's, if, if Hamas expected to trade hostages for terrorists in prison in Israel, well, you know, then they have an interest in making sure they don't die and they aren't mistreated and so forth. But the idea that, uh, you know, like we're going to take everything she says as sort of the gospel truth. I think you have to count, count for the fact that there are, she has her husband and others, you know, and her friends who are her people in her kibbutz or whoever are also held captive. So she is. Oh no, married. that's absolutely what it's. Oh no, I I wasn't yeah. suggesting. Oh, that I know you weren't. But I'm saying I've seen. I've like, seen, oh, and now I now I and now I get it. No, yeah, but I, I just wonder what the strategy is like. If if there's if you have any insights or any suspicions about sort of what is going on in the back channels regarding. Well, we know that Qatar, which hosts the senior Hamas leadership, is trying to be, you know, I, I would say that it's like the arsoner who's volunteering to be the firefighter. So they're trying to, to resolve the situation and the United States is trying to get its people out. And I, I fear that Hamas might agree to release the Americans and the Thai and everyone except for the Israelis. And if you were, if you're, in the, if you're the American president or you're the head of state of another country, your first priority is to get your citizens out even though that will be probably consigning the Israelis to death. And it's a terrible, terrible choice. And I don't blame anybody for that. If Biden needs to make that deal, I'm not going to hold it against him. I put the blame squarely at Hamas. Mm -hmm. But I will say that like, in my own supposed, I guess maybe this is a kind of masochism, I wanted to see what some of the the dirtbags were saying. And when those two women were interviewed, you saw all the usual suspects, the Max Blumenthal's, people like that, acting as if, aha, see how humane the Hamas is and the Israelis are trying to get these people killed. And it's it, there's a part of it that's funny, but then there's a part of it that's just like, you know, what is wrong with you, you demented fuck? Sorry, excuse my language, but it's just like, I don't know what to, who is dumb enough to believe this stuff? I know. I know. Yeah. And it looks like fake news. Like that's what's so head spinning about it is you're sitting there on Twitter and you're seeing this footage and it's like, what? I don't, I don't know what I'm looking at. 
Well, I think, you know, you said what you were looking at. I mean, I think you, you had the right response. Like, this is somebody who is in trauma, who is trying to do whatever she can to make sure that her loved ones and neighbors are not murdered and tortured. So she'll say anything. Right, right. And by the way, like, Hamas are idiots for thinking that the rest of us are dumb enough to believe them. But apparently they're bolstered by idiots, useful idiots like Max Blumenthal or Rania Kralik, et cetera. Do you think that uh, we're going to end up in sort of a Vietnam conflict type of situation? I mean, Hamas is kind of winning right now. You know, they've they've provoked Israel to respond in this way. I don't know about that. Okay. I would argue, I would argue a little bit differently. Before October 7th, Israel was, some would say, on the precipice of maybe a civil war or a political civil war. There were massive protests in the streets. There were even some violence at times. The country was totally divided. They've united the state of Israel. They've, I think they've united decent people in, in, throughout the civilized world. Any hope that the United States, because of hostages or for whatever reason, would restrain Israel so far really hasn't come to pass. We only hear it as a sort of afterthought in comments from Biden and the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. And Israel is serious. They're, but when this is over... Hamas will not be in charge of anything in Gaza. And if I was Ismail Haniya or Khaled Mashal living in Doha, I would I would make sure to maybe not sleep in the same bed every night because the Mossad is coming for you. So I'm not so sure that it worked out really well for Hamas. I, I don't know what they were expecting. I think there was an argument. I've read this from people and it's only, we don't know this yet, but maybe there was an expectation that you would drag Israel down into Gaza and then Hezbollah would launch their attack. And Well, that's what I mean. Like, I, like they, if their goal is to get rid of Israel, they have turned big sections. They're, first of all, they've turned big sections of the left against Israel and they've made well, Israel more vulnerable. the left vulnerable. was already against Israel. And I think they've, and I would argue that at least the American left, I can't really speak as much for the European left. I don't know it as well, but even the American left, yes, the loudest voices are saying, uh, are, are, are cheering or excusing the barbarism. There are a lot of people, though, who I would say are, like, rethinking a whole lot right now. And I would say that our side, which would like, which cares about things outside of Israel, like free speech, you know, like not have, you know, against online censorship, all the stuff that was promoted by this broader kind of coalition, that broader coalition looks horrendous to most of the country right now. So, You've done a great job of really exciting, you know, all, all of the, the uh, you know, artisan basket weavers of Brooklyn. Congratulations. Those guys are really into it. But the rest of the country, the rest of New York, not so much. And there's a reason why a guy like Russell Rickford, the uh, historian at Cornell University, who said he was so exhilarated by the attacks, has recanted his statements. Because people are starting to notice how just lunatic these people are. And how, so, I mean, like, I don't know, like, yeah, you're always going to find people who are going to be the loudest and they're going to feel like, you know, this is, a, this is but I, I'm not so sure. And by the way, deciding to videotape your massacre, that wasn't that smart. I mean, I think, you know what I'm saying? That, that, that's going to live forever. So, yeah. Well, okay. But I guess what I, I agree with what you're saying, but I, I'm asking like, 
is Israel now, because of their reaction, more vulnerable to getting attacked from the north by Hezbollah and Iran? Is it easy to see this turning into a regional conflict with like U.S. troops on the ground with no allies? And then we have a Vietnam situation with incredible division within the U.S. Are you worried about that scenario? I think we're already seeing a regional war. Hezbollah has been fired rockets. They haven't fired most of them yet. We just saw today that there was uh, reports of cruise and ballistic missiles fired from the Houthi rebels in Yemen. This has been the plan for Iran for some time to encircle Israel, use its proxies, and to kind of create a multi-front war. So we're in the war whether we like it or not. And, you know, that's not great, but Israel is still stronger than its adversaries. And, you know, it's it, it, it's, Israel didn't ask for this war. I mean, the... The war came to them, so. Yeah. All right, well, here's my last question. All right. Could Israel lose? Is it possible that Israel could be defeated, and what would happen then? I think that the way that Israel loses is not militarily. It's possible for Israel to lose if world opinion turns in such a way that we start seeing, or that, that America doesn't protect Israel, which I don't think is going to happen under the Biden, but if a the UN Security Council sanctioned Israel and the US did not veto that, you know, it would further degrade Israel's ability to defend itself. And if they are, if the Cretans who are calling for a ceasefire get their way and Hamas is left in charge of Gaza, well, then that is Israel losing. But I don't think that they are going to get their way. And I think it's important for those people, these people who think that, you know, they're summoning kind of a righteous anger to lose and to and it's at like it's not just that they should lose politically at home and like Israel's going to do it anyway and the US government is going to is going to it's going to give them you know supplies and weapons and money they should be shamed i mean i'm sorry but like they are so used to having this kind of moral high ground and judging everybody like i stand in judgment of them and i don't want to be associated with them and if I was a corporation, I wouldn't want to have anything to do with Black Lives Matter if Black Lives Matter cannot denounce its chapters who have endorsed this massacre. So I think that there will be consequences for the left as well, because they're not the only people who like live in America. And they've been treated like that now, especially since George Floyd for like three years. And guess what, guys? The honeymoon's over. That's life in the big city. They've been using themselves as human shields now that I think of it, right? I just thought of that. Do you yeah. think that the GoPro footage should be released? Because yes. you do. Yeah. Absolutely. Let the world see these this the fiendishness for itself. Yeah. Okay. Well, Eli, thank you. This is just skim the surface, but I really appreciate Megan, it. Megan, thank you. You ask great questions. And uh again, I'm a huge admirer of your work and your brave voice. So thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure and an honor. Thank you. I hope we can do it again. Me too. That was my conversation with Eli Lake. He is a columnist for the Free Press and the host of the Re-Education podcast, which I highly recommend you check out. He does great interviews and also amazing monologues. He also writes for Commentary and Bloomberg. He's obviously very busy and he goes on a lot of podcasts, including this one. What else? This is the Unspeakable Podcast. You know that. If you want to support it, that would be amazing. You can go to Megan 
dom.substack.com. You can become a paying subscriber and join the listener community. That means you can leave comments. I am giving you bonus content as much as I can. If you are listening to this particular episode, this one does not have bonus content. Eli was very generous to stay for as long as he did, but I did not rope him into staying over time to talk about how he felt about being the age that he was. Just, you know, didn't seem, didn't seem quite appropriate. But I will continue to bring you as much as I can. Again, the 2024 Unspeakeasy retreats have been announced. They are March 2nd and 3rd in Austin, Texas. April 9th through 12th, Louisville, Kentucky. April 20th and 21st, Los Angeles. And October 21st through 24th in Woodstock, New York. Go to theunspeakeasy.com. Find out about that. Please, if you like this podcast, leave a review and a rating, preferably positive. That helps me a lot. And I often forget to remind you to do that. So please do that. You can also access this podcast on YouTube at the unspeakable podcast. You can leave comments there. It's very, very rich, robust, highly intellectual commenting community on YouTube as one might expect. And you can also listen to my other podcast, a special place in hell that I do with Sarah Hader. That one's on video on YouTube. There's just a lot. It's a lot of content. I'm bringing you a lot of content. So uh, you're welcome. And also apologies. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you then. Thank you.